0: In this podcast, Dr. C. Brendan Montano discusses recognition, assessment, and treatment of adult ADHD in primary care settings. He first discusses reasons why adult ADHD is frequently missed or misdiagnosed in primary care settings and reviews techniques and screeners that primary care physicians can use to better identify ADHD in their practices. He also discusses treatment and when to refer for specialized care. Today we're going to be talking about the recognition and assessment of adult ADHD in the primary care setting. One might ask, well, why is that important? You know, it's important because this is a very common disease. It's a common disease that presents and is under-recognized to the point where most of us are unfamiliar with how to diagnose it. So what I'm going to do in this segment is to talk about how to diagnose it. First, let's take a look at the big picture. Kessler's National Replication Survey states that approximately 4.4% of adults are afflicted with ADHD. Now, only one out of 10 is estimated to have received treatment during the prior 12 months. So This disease is a disease that persists from childhood. Symptoms may change somewhat, but the inattention is pervasive and impairing and presents multiple problems. When we look at other diseases that we see in primary care, major depression on an annual basis affects 7 to 8 percent. The next most common is adult ADHD, which affects 4.4 percent of adults 18 to 65. Generalized anxiety disorder, which most of us are familiar with, 3%. Bipolar disorder, spectrum illness, about 2.5%. And so given this prevalence, we need to be more aware and be more vigilant in screening and diagnosing ADHD. Now, it's estimated that most PCPs, most primary care physicians and other providers, are not comfortable with this diagnosis due to failure in our medical education and lack of understanding of the disease. So much so that when you look at referral of psychiatric patients to psychiatry from primary care, most of us in primary care will feel comfortable with treating depression. Only 2% of adults are referred to a specialist. 3% of adults with anxiety symptoms are referred to a specialist. However, in surveys, it is found that up to 65% of adults with ADHD are referred to a specialist, usually a psychiatrist, for the diagnosis. So once again, uh, most of us have been unfamiliar and untrained with how to recognize and even treat the disease. So why diagnose ADHD in a busy practice setting? Well, number one, because it's quite prevalent, most practitioners see at least one adult daily with ADHD but fail to recognize. And secondly, because it's frequently comorbid with major depressive disorder, anxiety disorders, and substance use disorder. ADHD significantly impairs functioning, and it may impair a patient from following through with good advice in managing their other medical problems, such as hypertension, diabetes, etc., Especially. If treating those problems requires multiple dosing through the day with medications, multiple medications, and or complicated regimens for nutrition, etc., So why treat ADHD? Because it has a great deal to do with how well people will do with other illnesses as well. It is estimated that medical costs with ADHD patients are more than double if they go untreated than those who do not have this disease. How do you know a patient has ADHD? Well, If you're a family practitioner, often you can pick it up with children with ADHD who will often have their parents afflicted, or vice versa if you're doing family practice and you're looking at the parents with ADHD who might have children. The genetic origin is thought to be 65 to 75% of the ADHD we see, and it's a highly genetically transmitted disease, similar to the same uh, heritability as height, about 76%. So, With that in mind, we can certainly entertain the diagnosis in families, but also there are environmental factors and CNS insults that can accommodate or account for 25 to 35% of our presentations of uh, ADHD. Some of the medical differentials that we might look at would be, uh, of course, uh, metabolic illnesses, thyroid illness, uh, sleep apnea with cognitive dysfunctions, Certainly, any dementia, fibromyalgia, traumatic brain injury, and, and environmental toxins, and we need to keep an open mind to look at things that can impair brain function. And certainly, uh, one good example would be lead poisoning. We also know that the pre and perinatal causes are significant. Alcohol and cigarettes in pregnancy are thought to be related with significant increases of two to three times the normal rates of ADHD if in gestation women smoke and or drink. Pregnancy complications can be associated as well with anoxic problems, brain bleeding, uh, trauma, certainly uh, phenylalanine levels being high, etc. And as I mentioned, the heritability of this disease is similar to that of height. As has previously been discussed, we know that there are neuroanatomical changes with delayed brain growth in this disorder. These changes persist into adulthood in many patients afflicted with ADHD. The dual systems of attention that are primarily affected involve neurotransmitters that are what we call catecholamines. So in the posterior parietal cortex, there's a deficiency in norepinephrine activity which usually will enhance signal to noise ratio by inhibiting basal neuronal firing. In the prefrontal cortex, in the anterior cingulate gyrus, we also know that dopamine has a lot to do with focusing attention via D1 receptor inhibition for excitatory NMDA inputs. And we know, therefore, that in order to try and correct, for the dysfunction in the brain, we need to primarily look at catecholamines, that is dopamine and norepinephrine. There's very good PET scan data as well that show that patients with ADHD had much lower levels of dopamine transporters in the nucleus accumbens as part of their illness. And so One cannot argue, is this a real disease or not? It's clear there's enough research now to illustrate that this truly is a neuronal dysfunction. What's the impact of this disease other than on other medical illnesses? We know that there is significant functional and social impairment seen in adults with undiagnosed ADHD, lower educational achievement and socioeconomic status, unemployment much greater levels of functional impairment at work, lower levels of income, joblessness, higher rates of comorbid mental illnesses, especially major depression, as I have mentioned, and anxiety disorders. We also see in Biederman's life impairment survey, as has been previously discussed, and cannot be stressed too much, that rates of divorce are almost double, that joblessness is almost double, that in terms of fitting in with one's parents and peers, there is stress. And so many other behaviors become problematic. Recreational use of drugs is far higher in the ADHD set of patients when compared to controls. Having been arrested, having speeding tickets, and being addicted to tobacco or smoking, something that is so prevalent in our primary care setting, I would suggest that one of the driving forces to smoking in a subset of patients who have a lot of difficulty giving up cigarettes is indeed ADHD. Moving on, I think it's important for us to look at how patients present in primary care with ADHD. I've already mentioned that sometimes a patient will come in and say to you, Doc, I think I have ADHD, or my wife thinks I have ADHD, or my friend just got treated for ADHD, and I think I have it too because I've seen how well he's done. For family practitioners, often the family history, and not only that, but the presentation of the family members who may share this illness, are an indication to go and search out other members in the family who might have it. So self-referral, Patients often complain of trouble with distraction and concentration, difficulty at work, losing their jobs, impulsive behaviors, difficulty controlling temper and anxiety. There's only a few impulse control problems, and the diagnosis most commonly associated are ADHD and bipolar disorder. Anxiety is almost part of this disorder because of the list of incompletions and problems associated as we've just been through in the life impairment survey. However, that being said, we often see ADHD presenting comorbidly, and the symptoms of ADHD are often masked during the active phase of another psychiatric disorder, so the patient may present, for instance, with major depression and have their ADHD masked in the process Let's take a look at the most common comorbidities. In one study of adults with ADHD, 87% had at least one comorbidity and 56% had at least two additional psychiatric disorders. So once again, comorbidity is the rule rather than the exception. The three most common comorbidities are anxiety and anxiety disorders, depression, and substance use disorder, which is an attempt to self-medicate, usually for this disorder. So diagnosis of ADHD in adults with comorbidity requires a careful differential. If you look at the lifetime psychiatric comorbidities with adult ADHD, they run the gamut from bipolar disease, panic disorder, agoraphobia, social phobia, GAD, and substance use disorder, both in males and females it behooves us when we see someone come in with any of the other comorbidities to keep a high index of suspicion for evaluating for ADHD, especially after the most serious of those comorbidities is treated. And what I mean by that is if one were looking at, A comorbid presentation of ADHD and someone had depression, anxiety disorder, and substance use disorder all at once, which is not unusual, one would treat the most important one first. And if major depression was substantial, once that was remitted with the anxiety, hopefully, and having parallel treatment the whole time for the substance use disorder, because nothing will be accomplished without that, then... Carefully reassessing for the prevalence of adult ADHD disorder would be indicated. With major depression, approximately 12% of our patients, once treated and remitted in their depression, will still have ADHD present, with anxiety and anxiety disorders up to 15%. Certainly, if you took all substance abusers and you treated their substance abuse, you would still have 25% that underneath it were actually ADHD patients. And so high index of suspicion, careful reassessment, always treating the worst disease first, but not forgetting to look for ADHD is indicated. As a matter of fact, if you don't treat associated ADHD, the likelihood of getting to remission with a major depression is impaired. So what are the elements that are most important? For the most part, if your full diagnostic criterion are there, you're going to have six out of nine inattentive or hyperactive impulsive symptoms at least for six months, and impairment in multiple settings. The, the onset usually is before age seven, but DSM-5 may change this, and we may see a lot more NOS or not otherwise specified presentations of ADHD, where the Six out of nine, perhaps, or five or four out of nine. And the impairment, although it's in multiple settings, may not have started until age 10 or 12. So when those new criteria evolve, and even now before they are presented, I want to make sure that when you are looking at ADHD, the pervasiveness and impairment are the critical aspects to diagnosis. So this diagnosis is based on clinical assessment. Of course you need to have symptoms, symptoms of inattention primarily, with or without, hyperactivity and impulsivity that may have morphed into adulthood, into restlessness and uh, impetuousness and impatience and quick to ignite anger. Okay? There's a family history almost always. Go for that longitudinal history of distraction since childhood. This is not a cyclic illness. Rating scales, we're going to talk about in a minute, they're very valuable. They don't make the diagnosis, but they bring you to the diagnosis. And interviewing family members, getting collateral history of any kind, is very, very useful. When we look at translating ADHD that is using childhood criteria into the adult setting, inattention is the most pervasive of all the symptoms. It does not go away. But hyperactivity often manifests as restlessness, being a workaholic with an active job where you have to keep active all the time. Constant talking, for instance. Salesman, a car salesman, always having to run back out to the lot and talk continuously. This is a kind of job that one might self-select to put their ADHD hyperactivity into a purposeful setting. But the symptoms of impulsivity are much more serious because what they morph into is driving automobiles too fast, having accidents, excessive caffeine and nicotine use, and very, very often impulsive job loss, quitting jobs, having impulsive anger that gets people in trouble with the law, and also ruins relationships. So the impulsivity can be very problematic. When screening your patient for ADHD, it's very important to ask some basic questions. The first one that I always ask is, have you ever been diagnosed with ADHD in the past as a child? Have you been treated for it? Do you have a first degree member in your family who has ADHD? Do you have a lifelong history of chronic distractibility inattention, and or disorganization? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then administering a screener, such as the six-item World Health Organization screener, followed up by an 18-item adult ADHD rating scale that's self-administered, you can leave the room, give the scale to the person to fill out, and then come back, or the Adler adult ADHD SRS version 1.1, with adult prompts, I think then it's very important to look at this. But in order to establish this diagnosis, as has been previously discussed, there must be not only this history of distractibility, but a significant impairment in more than one area of life, that is, in their school or work and or social and family life. So let's talk about some of the tools again that we can use for the diagnosis, that is the screening and diagnosis and monitoring of ADHD and ADHD symptoms. The first I mentioned is a six-question screener that is available from the World Health Organization. And when you look at this screener, what it really does, it consists of six questions, four that are looking at inattention and two that are looking at hyperactivity and impulsivity. If any four of these are marked in the dark boxes, that means that they're there sometimes, often, or very often. And if any four of them are indicated marked, then it really means that you've got a potential positive candidate for ADHD, and you need to go into more detail looking at those nine inattentive and nine hyperactive impulsive symptoms that are associated with ADHD. But remembering that those criterion- were developed for childhood ADHD, it's important that you use the the newer ones that have adult prompts. And so Adler's ADHD ASRS version 1.1 is a checklist that allows patients to go through adult prompts under each one of the criterion and score them between zero and three. This not only helps to diagnose the disorder. As you know, for full symptom criterion, you need either six Of the inattentive or six of the hyperactive impulsive positive. But it also allows us to quantify the score and have a baseline from which to adjust our treatment and know if we're getting 20% better, 40% better, 50% better, which is where I think we really must go in this disorder. Again, this disorder is not only treated by pharmacotherapy, but also by psychotherapies and group therapies that are available, when you are looking at your patient with ADHD, include all their medical problems that can cause cognitive disturbances, including what I mentioned earlier in this in this presentation, things like sleep apnea. But also, if you're going to avoid underdiagnosing ADHD you must look at all of your mood disorder patients, substance use disorder patients, and screen them once they're treated. When you have a patient who has treatment-resistant depression or treatment-resistant anxiety, you've used adequate doses of your medications that normally are effective and you've only gotten a partial response, entertain the possibility that ADHD may be preventing this patient from getting all the way better. ADHD, by the way, can occur in people with very high IQs. It has nothing to do with how smart you are. Impairment should be gauged relative to the true potential that a patient has. So don't be afraid to use ADHD not otherwise specified or ADHD in partial remission for cases that don't meet full symptom criterion. Finally, I will tell you when you treat these folks you are going to expand and enhance their lives if they are candidates for treatment either with non-stimulant or stimulant and they follow through and you monitor and measure along the way how well they're doing with their ADHD surveys such as the Adler ASRS, you will find that this is one of the most gratifying diseases in terms of watching functional improvement in your patients in all areas of their lives, at work, at home, in their health. Now there will be some patients who present in a complicated fashion or don't fit into the categories you're looking for in any and all disorders, especially ADHD. If you have complicated patients that you are concerned about, you should really refer them to your psychotherapist ally. Suicidal ideation or intent is immediately something that should be evaluated by psychiatry. Diagnostic or therapeutic uncertainty, as I have mentioned, or a complicated psychiatric comorbidity, which brings questions up about treatment. If the symptoms do not respond to the medications approved for treating ADHD, and by the way, the medications approved for long-acting medication, either non-stimulant, atomoxetine, or the uh, stimulants that are long-acting, which are either going to be methylphenidate or mixed amphetamine salts. This disease is a 24-7 disease. It doesn't stop after work. It doesn't stop after school. And unfortunately, without treating it all the way through the day and into the evening, there may be risk for your ADHD patient especially if multiple dosing is required. Most patients aren't able to do that. So if your adult patient needs treatment reinforcement, another very good reason to refer your patient to psychiatry and also for therapy and support. Most people who have had ADHD for a period of time have problems in their lives that need resolution. And this is where psychotherapy can be so valuable. So it's a multimodal approach that needs to be taken, and it's a disease with multiple presentations, multiple variations. It's the most gratifying disease next to depression that you're going to treat in your practice. And I highly suggest that you screen your patients at the very least with the six-question ADHD rating scale. And I'll end my presentation there and wish you luck in looking at all your patients, the one out of the day or the two out of the day that you may be missing right now with ADHD.